tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. Hello, it's Vincent here, Macca, from Kyogle. I heard your thing about shopping at... Uh, shopping on a Saturday in 1945, going into Tenderfield. A two going mile into buggy, Tenderfield. A two-mile buggy ride, yep. Yeah, Casino Road, you know, and we went to Casino yesterday. We had a horse in the Casino Gold Cup. It's all shut down and everything, but we decided the owners are allowed to come in, you know, yeah. and watch the race, and we won the cup. You with won. our horse at Wits End. At Wits End. <laughs> yeah. I named him like that. I bred him and everything, you know. He's all right. Five years ago. He goes all right. Oh, he's won the Gold Cup and he's won seven races now, so he, he's good. He truly is a great horse. Only a bush horse, but he's truly a great horse. But one of the things I thought, I was listening to the races the other day and Bernadette Cooper came on and... There was an announcement, this poor little darling up in Brisbane somewhere, and she'd fallen off a pony and is now a paraplegic from the neck down. So I'm quite excited that at least when the money comes through, I'll be able to give some to that little girl, you know. She's just only about nine or something. We had our fun and everything yesterday, but that little girl's lying on her back and could be like it for the rest of her life. Australia. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will. Good, good morning and welcome. That was Vince uh, last week. Our number this morning, uh, 1300 700 222. Give us a ring wherever you are. Lots of things to talk about. That was Vince last week or the week before with his horse uh, at wit's end and he's going to donate some prize, prize money and see a little New South Walesman helping a little Queensland girl. We're all Australians and the sooner we all come to that realisation, whether you're ordinary people, we're Australian. I'm not... I'm an Australian, that's what I am. And the sooner we all realise that, the better, I reckon. And that applies to politicians everywhere. Uh, that little girl's name is Abby Sweeper. Um, I had a an email from Anne Hutchings who said, My grandchildren and I would like to make this little girl a soft, cuddly blanket and to write her a letter to lift her spirits. Would this be possible, please? I was very touched by the story, but only heard the last part of it with Vince. Well, if Vince hadn't rung, we wouldn't know about it. And Vince said, uh, you know, <laughs> he says he's a lovely horse. He's a great horse. He's a very good horse. He's only a bush horse, but he's a great horse. <laughs> I love it, Vincey. I love it. Yeah, Abby Sweep is the name. I don't have any details, Anne, but we'll get that to you. You'll probably find that somewhere uh, on the net. But um, they want to make a, a soft, cuddly blanket. And uh, when you see the other things that are going on, it pulls you up, doesn't it, eh? People are fighting about all sorts of progressive causes in Australia. And Anyway, uh, 2020 marks the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, which took place between July and October 1940, and the 15th of September was officially named Battle of Britain Day, as it was the day when RAF Fighter Command claimed to what proved to be a decisive victory over the Luftwaffe. There you are, Battle of Britain, 80th anniversary, the 15th uh, of September. 
That's Tuesday, is it, Kel? Yeah, that's Tuesday, basically. We're in Kakadu, says Rob Fitzgerald. Drove the car up for our stranded daughter, working in the NT for a couple of weeks, about six months ago. <laughs> so they're stranded. Only about 10% of the usual tourists. Numbers are half, uh, so very quiet, half a million normally, apparently. At least we in the Northern Territory are not in jail like our Victorian friends. Such a contrast here in Jabiru with dry undergrowth with a slight smell of bushfires to the wetlands of Yellow River. G'day, this is Macca. Good morning, Macca. Yeah, g'day, mate. Uh, Scott Agee, mate, how are you? Good, thanks, Scotty. What are you up to? What's that noise? Uh, just uh, driving a haul out track to make up sugar cane. Oh, right. Where are, where are you? Uh, up in Ningham, North Queensland. Oh, right. So it's a good season? Yeah, mate, yeah, no, it's been going not too bad. We've had no rain this year and no major breakdowns. It's smashing through. It's going good. So are you, um, you local or you fly in for this or what? No, I'm local, mate, down from Townsville. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, when did the season start? It finishes, what, November, does it? Yeah, late November. Yeah, we started June, middle of June this year. Yeah, just oh, the rain did hold us up a little bit at the start, but, yeah, no, it's been going good since then. And what time do you... Uh, do you finish today, or do you do it all night, or you know what's a what's a day for you, mate? Uh, we start usually two thirty in the morning, and yeah, can finish anywhere after two thirty in the afternoon. You know, 12, 13, 14 hour day. Yeah, and how's uh, how's things in uh, North Queensland, mate? Yeah, no, beautiful, mate. Just watching the sun come up over the horizon as we speak, and yeah, it's going to be a lovely day. Sixteen point five degrees as we speak. <laughs> There you go. Now, you got an air-conditioned cab there, have you? Yeah, mate. Yeah, lovely. Beautiful air-conditioned. Got the heater on a little bit now, but yeah. Oh, not really. The, heat, the heater? God help me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it gets a little bit too cold in here, mate, if the aircon's set too low, eh? Yeah, many tourists on the road, Scotty? Oh, I've seen a few, a few boats going out this morning. There's people locals, buddy. The tenders just down the road here in beautiful fishing. Yeah, so. Oh, we should all be there, Scott. Good on you, mate. Oh, Definitely, mate. Thanks for taking it easy, Macca. Nice to talk to you. See you, mate. Bye. You too, mate. Bye. Hello, Macca. Yep. Uh, this is John. I'm calling from uh, Tribunitas, Manga. Hi, John. Uh, we're going out to dive for a scallop today. I, I actually rang you about five years ago, and um, we were going out diving then, and I'm um, 74 years old, and I still run a Cravo commercially, but today we're just going out um, non-commercially to dive for scallops. And, and is, um, is that a good... Is that a good uh, tell us about that, Johnny. You wear wetsuits, of course, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The water, the temperature, the water temperature is about 9 degrees at the moment, oh, and um, my old suits, I'm reluctant to buy a new one. I'm so old, but um, my daughter did buy me a new... Um, <clears throat> weight vest the other day she um i've had the other one for 40 years and she bought me a new one but um uh it's not real deep where they are but um you're only allowed 50 a day but the huge scallops and um 50 scallops the other day two of us got 100 scallops and they went um six kilos so you know it's like about um 18 to a kilo which is really big and um but uh, two days ago we were out diving and I, a big seal came over to me underwater and scared hell out of me. And when I got up, there was a big patch of seals on the surface splashing and carrying on and the next thing, a killer whale came up in amongst them. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but um, the, 
other guy who was in the boat and he joked. He, I said, didn't you see that and pull me up? And he said, he said, no, he said, I didn't think you'd have enough in your bag at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a joke. Um, but uh, about 10 years ago, I was around South West Tasmania running the cray boat and it was early in the morning, just on daylight, and it was blowing a gale, and I was really down, and even my backhand had had enough, and I was listening to you, it was ABC, the only um, station I could get on the radio at the time, oh, and I was listening to you, and yeah. you played um, uh, the song Sayonara Nakamura by Ted Egan. All right, yep. And it cheered me up no end. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I actually, when I got home, I got a, a CD of it, and that's one of my favourite songs. But there you go. Anyway, I'll let you go. I just thought I'd give you a call. And um, oh, Johnny, it's nice to talk to you. Do you, you see? Um, you said it's fairly reasonably shallow where you go for your scallops. Um, we we yeah, went to about, the, go on. Yeah, it's about um, oh, ten metres. Yeah, um, that's about that's thirty feet. I, and you see, I suppose there's a the odd shark around there, is there? Well, um, last year I was actually a commercial abalone diver for over 30 years and I'd never seen a, a white point or anything until last year when I was diving for a crayfish just non-commercially and I actually saw one. But um, five years ago when I called you was the day after we had a fatality right here where we're getting the scallops now. There was um, a, a hell of a nice fella and he, him and his daughter were diving and and he got um, he got attacked fatally then, but um, there's, uh, there is a few around, but you don't very often see them. You don't see them much. So, but um, the um, Gary Kerr that um, he produced a CD on the pearl divers in Western Australia and other things. Well, he's just recently produced one on um, the abalone divers in Tasmania yeah. and. Um, yeah, that, that's quite good. It's got a bit about but that old Bern Cusperson in it and so forth. All right, Max, it's lovely to talk to you. Bye. You too, mate. Bye. G'day, Macca. Yep. Yep. G'day, Mac. This is Roger. G'day, Roger. Uh, calling, from the, calling from the Bahamas uh, in, in the Caribbean. Um, it was interesting uh, listening to that fella because my name's Roger. Uh, I'm a cabinet maker or I've, I've been a cabinet maker since 1973. And I've got a shark story too, which only happened about two weeks ago in the Bahamas here. So, uh, but uh, I'll give you a rundown on first on uh, what are you doing in the Bahamas? What are you doing in the Bahamas, Rog? I work for a uh, shop cleaning company or, or mill work they call them in the US in uh, from Mississippi in the south of, of the US. Uh, that's where I sort of live. I was home. I come home a fair bit. Uh, I was back home in uh, March and then sort of. Had to make a decision, was I going to stay there or come back, back to the US. So I was sort of, before before the flights all started to sort of close up. So I jumped on a plane and came back. Um, and now I'm down in the Bahamas. And uh, whoever thought uh, when I went to school in Bombardieri on the south coast that I'd end up uh, in my, my working years uh, coming to an end, I'd work in the Bahamas, uh, fitting out a restaurant, a very classy sort of, well, it's only a hamburger and milkshake restaurant, but it's a chain out of New York called Sugar Factory, and uh, they, they do them up uh, very nice. So that's what brings me to the Bahamas. Um, but my quick shark story was I do a lot of fishing, and I went I, I borrowed a kayak and went out and uh, fished around some reef and got a barracuda and some other fish. 
and I tied the barracuda to the kayak. And as I was paddling back to God, to have some breakfast back where the, we were staying right on the water here at a place called Cable Beach, and uh, I had to have a bit of a rest. And I sat back in my seat to stretch my back a bit. It was hurting. And the, and the kayak shook and, and lifted to one side, and I looked down, and there was a shark hanging onto the kayak. Uh, so I gave it two sharp smacks on the back of the head with the paddle, like stabbed it type of thing, and it let go. Circled around and then grabbed the, the barracuda. In, in It was a four-foot barracuda in, in one bite, bit the rope, and circled around again. And that's when I saw the size of this thing. It was uh, 13 to 14 foot long, and it was a tiger shark. I could distinctly see the bars in it. So I was only 10 minutes from where I had to pull the kayak out, but it only took me five minutes to come back because I had other fish in the kayak and I was thinking it was going to come back and uh, have a go, Macca. That, that was, that's my story, to, similar to the previous guy, so yeah. the other Roger. I think it's a bit, uh, as they say in the modern argot, I'd never heard the word before, but it's all used all the time now, problematic. Um, fishing uh, f- from kayaks, I spoke to a bloke in Broome near yeah. Cable Beach to another Cable Beach in Broome this time in yeah, Australia. That's right. And uh, he used to go out fishing in his kayak, and the same sort of things happened. You know, he could pull a shot, pull a, a, a big fish in, and the next minute, bang! Um, and you're not very well protected in a in a kayak, are you? No. So, especially with a big shark. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be um, yeah fishing from the beach. I reckon it's a good so idea. Little... Good on you, mate. Nice to talk oh, to you. All right. Hey, good day to everybody. See, Thank you very much, Macca. See Bye. you, Rog. Bye. I had an email the other day from a bloke called Will Muskins. He's a, sort of a mate of mine. I met him first time in Kilcoy many years ago, but he's been a sometime correspondent of the program and spent some time in New Guinea, and he wanted to tell us a story about um, Keith Dyer and, well, really the last of the key apps, I think they're called. Will, are you on, on the line? Good morning, mate. Yeah, good morning, Maka. Good to talk to you again, and thanks uh, for having me on. Uh, and uh, speaking of PNG, it's Independence Day when on is it Wednesday? I think so. Ian. Yeah, it's on Wednesday, and uh, it's what uh, seventy-five, so it's forty-five years that uh, they've been standing on their own feet. And uh, what what Australia did in that time before that, uh, they sort of disappeared off off the, off the uh, radar altogether. Thanks well, mainly to the cancel culture and other issues, you know, political correctness and whatnot. Yes. Tell me about the key apps. You, you, you wanted to tell me about Keith Dyer. He's one of the last of the key apps. Uh, key app stands for what? what is... Well, key apps were patrol officers, uh, and key app came from the German sort of uh, vernacular back in the days uh, when Australia first took over. But uh, Keith was the last of the what I call the B4s, uh, Macca, he, he started in 1946 straight after the war, having served during the war as well, uh, although not, not in PNG. And uh, he is the second last of that era still standing, uh, the only one that's still alive. And funnily enough, uh, he turned 100 yesterday, and that's pretty card. Wow. So, and, and uh, Will, you, you were a key app? Indeed, I was, uh, Macca. I, uh, I went up there in 1958, and... Uh, uh, it was my good fortune to be sent to a little place called Sidor, which is on the north coast of New Guinea. Uh, 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 the nearest town was Madang. And uh, Keith uh, Dyer was my, what's called, assistant district officer. He was, he was in charge of the area. And uh, I was so lucky because uh, when, I, when I arrived as an 18-year-old, fresh out of high school, he would have looked at me and thought, well, crikey, this bloke's going to be on a very long learning curve. And so... 
he took me on uh, with great resolve and uh, <laughs> and uh, moulded me into into the person I am today to a large extent. And yet you don't hear well, you don't hear much about Independence Day here. It's it's funny, isn't it? We're we're in in inevitably intertwined with PNG, a bit like New Zealand in in a different way, but the same sort of thing. Very very close and neighbours, a lot in common. And yet you don't hear a lot about key apps or those people that worked in PNG before independence and did a um, mostly a, a mighty job. Well, they did, uh, Mac, and I have the huge respect and regard for the people who started back in the early days in 1946, straight after the war, because at that time, PNG was, uh, there were large slabs of the, of the inland that were uncontrolled, that hadn't been uh, penetrated by any government patrols of any description, and the blokes who were out there did with, did, did with little. You know, they had no resources whatsoever to uh, to, to uh, what you compare to today mm. uh, and so they had massive deprivations and yet they uh, they did a fantastic job to uh, to build up infrastructure and uh, help uh, improve government services throughout the country and were you there on independence day which was when 1960 when was that 1969 was it no, no 75 75 sorry I, I left yeah. about yeah yeah i left a couple of weeks beforehand because uh, We'd arranged to buy a news agency in, in Kalamba, and so uh, I had to leave. But uh, no, look, uh, the, uh, the, the the job that, that Australians did up there were, was mighty, and uh, I think that uh, it's a shame that today um, you can't discuss it or even acknowledge that because, uh, as I said before, it's part of the cancer culture and political correctness uh, to sort of refer to what Australia did as something worthwhile. And yet ever since... Um 1975, things have been pretty tough, I suppose, you'd, say, you'd have to say, in PNG. I mean, they're on their own two feet, but it's, it hasn't been easy for them, and, and still they have, like many you know, Pacific countries, I suppose, for, for all sorts of reasons, but they still have, have their problems, don't they? Well, they do, I and mean, it's a cultural issue. It's uh, one of the unfortunate uh, facts of life in uh, Papua New Guinea that... Uh, what, what's called a one-talk system still prevails, so that if you become a leader um, in government, then your clan and your, the people back home where you come from expect you to, to share the largesse that's uh, at your disposal. So there's massive corruption by, in both the political and the bureaucratic uh, areas. And that's a, worldwide, and so the, that's a worldwide phenomenon too, isn't it, corruption, <laughs> compared to yeah, what... Yeah, how, but it, it, it's worse in PNG, uh, Maker, because there you've got people who... Have got very very little in the way of services, you know, like education, schooling, uh, health services, for example, uh, are just very very thin on the ground back uh, outside the main, the main centres. There you go. Now, well, you mentioned paper shops, um, and and they've changed a lot over the years. You you've retired from running paper shops and bookshops. I, I think I met you in a in an ABC centre, didn't I, in Kilcoy or something? You had a bookshop there, and yeah, you actually, you actually came to the paper shop in Kilcoy, and I think you came back uh, a year or so later and uh, and uh, did a, a small mini concert for uh, for the people in town. I think we might have even. Uh, uh, helped to sell a few of your books at the time, uh, Maka. <laughs> but yeah, the paper shop business has changed. But um, I always think the paper shops the, should be in these, uh, in often ways, the the centre of town. Certainly in a in a suburb or a in a, a country town, I've always you know you head for the paper shop because the bloke or lady running the paper shop usually knows a fair bit about what's going on. Yeah, 
Oh, absolutely. But again, that era has passed because of technology. I mean, people now look at... Uh, everybody's got a device nowadays, Maca, so they look at stuff on their device and uh, that's where they get the, the source of information. So I know my local news agent uh, at Paddington, I live at Barden, and the like at Paddington, uh, their paper numbers are down considerably from what they used to be back in their heyday. So, and also, of course, a lot of the products are sitting in supermarkets, so uh, it's it's very tough for these people. A lot of a lot of new news agents have gone broke. No two ways about it. Yeah, and that's a great shame, I think, because um, as I said, growing up, it was the place. And I don't know, care what you say about online stuff. There's nothing like uh, personal contact with somebody who knows what's going on. And usually, the bloke or the lady running a paper shop knew or could tell you what was going on uh, in a suburb of whatever. And and I don't know, we're 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 communicating beasts. So you know, there's, I have no appeal for looking at my phone. I much rather talk to someone. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, you know, I always used to think, uh, Maka, that being a news agent was a fairly uh, time-consuming and it's quite, quite a, a, a tiring sort of job. You know, you do long hours. But, you know, I always used to think that when I got behind the counter, I considered it like a stage. And the people coming in were my audience. <laughs> and so I used to sort of perform for them. And I've had jokes with them and stuff like that. You know, and that was, that was really great. I, I remember one, one, at one time we... We got a hold of some CDs for the local uh, amateur theatre group, and they wanted some uh, sound effect CDs. And I got one that involved involved bodily noises. <laughs> and so, <laughs> what we would do, we would sort of put this on the on the CD player at the back, and then as people came in, we would sort of play this CD in and sort of watch with great delight <laughs> people's reactions <laughs> to, to those noises. And that's the sort of stuff we got up to, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, there's an old saying, a proverb, um, a woman or stroke man who does not smile should not open shop. Um, and and uh, that's very true, isn't it? Very true. And oh, it's not just about opening a shop. It's whether you're a politician or whatever you do, or a plumber or a whatever. If you don't smile, you should, yeah, forget about it. Go and do something else. But, uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, nice to talk to you, um, and uh, I'll see you. So you live in Brisbane now, do you? Indeed, I do. And next time you're here, make it come and come and uh, let me know, and I'll take you around Mount Cooper with me. It's a wonderful time. I've been out there for two hours this morning, and it's a be- beautiful day, and uh, it's great to walk up the mountain and run down it, Maka. <laughs> All right. When I can get across the border, I'll be there, Will. Good on you, mate. Hello. See you. Thanks, Maka. I'll tell you why I live where I live. You may remember me as the Bush Tucker woman, says Jan Sinclair, and she's from up on the border, New South Wales and Queensland, who in the past has provided you with a few jars of Davidson's plum jam. I would never forget you, Jan. (laughs) It's just delightful. And also a rare and endangered Davidsonia jerseyana plant. I haven't forgotten that either. Quite a few years ago now, when you called in for a visit with your mum, Lorna, your sister, Robin and Lee. I'm now spending a bit more time on my art as the physicality of propagating, planting and preserving has become a bit too strenuous for these ageing bones, says Jan. She's not that old, but yeah, doing all that. Gardening's a tough gig, isn't it? It's a tough gig. I'll tell you about her art in a minute. My interest in our unique natural environment has not diminished. After 30 years of our old banana patch, it's now a mature rainforest. And if you remember our place with the wide verandas, we are now right in it close to all the flowering and fruiting trees, along with all the birds and the animals and reptiles. By the way, that goanna who regurgitated the five duck eggs 
well, that was 25 years ago, I think, Jim, at least 30 years ago, is still around. And maybe his grandson or daughter. Carpet snakes and micro bats are also in residence. So I guess my art could be an expression of why I live where I live. I used mixed media, coloured inks, wax and oil pastels and watercolour pencils, which gives me the opportunity to build up the colours and textures of the subtropical rainforest. The Baldy Pigeons is currently part of the Caldera Art Exhibition. Now, she wrote this six years ago, and that was an exhibition at the Tweed Regional Margaret Olley Gallery in Mwilumba, along with over 40 works representing the diversity of this area. And Jan has sent me her cards, and I'll get to them in just a moment. She also, as I said, she gave me from time to time a jar of... Davidson's Plum Jam, which is a native plum, and it's sour, just like if you pick it off the tree, just like a Kwandong, if you've ever done that, sour. And there's several varieties of Davidson's Plum, she says in this letter, I've been thinking I must get a sample of my Queensland Plum Jam off to you for a taste test. You will notice the difference to New South Wales as the fruit are larger and the skin is firm. Sometimes I peel them, but the chewy consistency is quite appealing. Oh, I love it. They fruit in winter here, which is a definite advantage as they don't spoil so easily and the king parrots and the bush rats are not so destructive and they have only one viable seed, which they love. I've sent you some cards, but I haven't any time to do any new ones yet as there are not enough hours in the day and the fruiting season has been too bountiful. See, as an example of why she lives, she's right in the, in the rainforest. She lives in the rainforest, which she grew out of a banana plantation. This card says, Ure Resilience in Flower. This unique native plum, Davidsonia jerseyana, demonstrates great resilience in the ongoing battle against imminent extinction. One of two endemic Davidsonias, this vertically growing native plum produces huge bunches of juicy but sour fruit in early summer. When still green, the fruit is eagerly sought out by king parrots. Ure is the indigenous name for the fruit. The Davidsonia is endemic to the Wollombin caldera area, growing right on the edge of rainforests. This makes it vulnerable to many threats, including land clearing, animal trampling, weed invasion, seed predation, as well as drought, fire and habitat fragmentation. During years of exploring the culinary benefits of the fruit from this tree, I noticed the rich, vibrant pigmentation in the stains from the juices and pulp, and I have experimented with them as dyes and painting pigments. This one's called My Place, Blue Fig Stroke Quandong Iliocarpus Grandis. This blue Quandong is a tall, majestic rainforest tree with open, almost horizontal branches that carry finely serrated slender leaves which become autumnal in winter, bringing flashes of colour through the canopy. And you can just imagine the picture on the card. The blue fruits have a thin layer of sour green flesh which is favoured by fruit pigeons including the colourful wampus, rose-crowned and the topknots. They're my favourite pigeons, the topknots. The knobbly seed resembles the desert quandong, but it's not related. The mature trees growing in coastal rainforests have exposed buttress root systems resembling figs, hence the name blue fig. They are my cathedrals, my place. Mixed media on paper. These, these, look, ladies and gentlemen, these are just, boys and girls, these are just fantastic, these cards. And this one, Billen Billen Bush Tucker. In early November, our subtropical canopy is parted with a flash of emerald green and scarlet red. Dappled light and fruit are scattered across the forest floor as the beautiful Billen Billen, the Bunjalung name for the birds, arrive to feed on the newly formed fruit of the Davidsonia jerseyana. I observe the hypnotic display of colours, intrigued by the ecological relationship taking place. Why do they crave the bitter-tasting seeds and the sour fruit of this endangered subtropical tree? 
Is it a nutritious food, uh, an essential medicine, or simply good tucker? And this card, finally, I could go on there, just fabulous. On the edge, it's called Hixbichii pinatifolia. In the late 1990s, this threatened rainforest tree was inhibiting the development of a newly aligned and sealed road. I tied purple marking ribbons on it and strongly suggested that the improved vehicular access be designed to accommodate it, says Jan Sinclair. The new road became a sweeping curve around this red bopple nut but still remains on the edge because it impedes the mechanical progress of the twice-yearly roadside slasher. In 2014, it was reduced to a few rugged stumps when in an act of environmental vandalism, six regrowth shoots were again broken from the trunk. This painting is the only evidence of its beauty in full flower and fruit before slashing, says Jan. Jan Sinclair's a wonderful lady, the Bush Tucker one. She concludes, as you can see, I'm old-fashioned in that I still write letters and make jam. (laughs) My son insists that I have a mobile phone. For emergencies, thankfully I haven't had one yet, goanna encounters included, and keep planting the local natives, great habitat for all the little critters. Jan Sinclair, Tumbalgum. And next week I'll share with you a lady who's in just the opposite, right in the middle of the big smoke, and got a cement courtyard and has turned it into a little garden. If you'd like to write to Why I Live Where I Live, it's Post Office Box 9094, Sydney 2001, and that's Why I Live Where I Live for this week. Hello, Maka, this is Mike. Hi, Mike. I live in uh, Hawksnest, and uh, my stepfather used to race up the speedway in 1929-1930. And um, he was still at school, his final year at school. This is on motorbikes, yep. On motorbikes, yes, and he was doing fairly well. He raced against an American whose name I forget. I think it was Spike someone or other. Uh And um, his parents came to the speedway one day, and possibly to look at something new. And while they were watching, he had a major spill, an accident, and they asked for a doctor to come down. And the doctor that came down was his father. Oh, really? I was absolutely stunned to find that his son, Guy, was riding at the speedway. They had no idea whatsoever. How old was he? Last year of school. So I guess it must have been about 16, 17. 16 or 17. 17. Yeah. Anyhow, he was banned from speedway riding and he wanted something else to do that was exciting. So he convinced his father to pay for flying lessons. And he went off and learned to fly at Mascot. Sorry, at... um, Bankstown? Bankstown. Yeah. Yep. And um, he flew there starting down about 1929-1930. And in 1931, he was the first person to fly the Tasman solo. And his name was? Guy Menzies. Guy Menzies, yes, I've heard of Guy Menzies. Yep. I think... yep he flew the Tasman solo in 1931, the first person to ever do it. Wow. Um, I, I've heard uh, Dick, Dick Smith talk about uh, Guy Menzies. That's right. Dick Smith did a um, flyover on the 75th anniversary of his Guy Menzies trip. That's right. And he landed the same airport or the same grass runway in Hokitika in South Island. What is it about some some usually men but women too who get that sort of who have that um yeah longing for um excitement in their life, you know? I mean I mean it's all very well for people to fly now, but I mean in nineteen twenty nine, thirty one there wasn't many people flying at all and and it, and and especially ripping round a 
a uh, dirt track on a on a motorbike at forty five degrees or even more. Um, yeah, amazing stuff, Michael. It was, and uh, he went on to do a career in the Air Force, the RAF. So he had an exciting life. I'll say. So you didn't do anything like that, Michael? No, no. I took up flying as well, but uh, I didn't ride. I rode motorbikes, but on the road. (laughs) Very wise, (laughs) Michael. Okay, just thought you'd like to hear that and put a few bits together. Yes, I'll say. He starts off with uh, dirt bike racing and ends up uh, crossing the Tasman, the first to cross the Tasman. What sort of a plane was that? It was um, Kingston Smith's second-hand aircraft that he bought. Oh, right. Um, and he had it based at Bankstown, and they had a special fuel tank put in so that he could do the trip. Yeah. But nobody knew he was doing flying the Tasman. He didn't tell anybody except his brother. <laughs> and he didn't tell his father, obviously. <laughs> didn't tell anybody. The official thing was he was setting off to fly to Perth to break the Sydney-Perth record in an aircraft. And he took off before dawn, and they all waved him goodbye, and the reporters were there waiting for him to arrive in Perth. And um, he disappeared. And his brother handed a letter to his father, which said, I'm off to New Zealand. All right, good on and, you. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. Uh, nobody knew except his brother and a meteorologist who gave him the Tasman weather. There you go. Good on you, Michael. Great to talk to you. Okay, thanks, Michael. Margaret Harrison is on the line. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Macca. Where are you? Um, I'm in beautiful Glen Innes as we speak, Macca, oh, right. but I've just had the last week in um, Mungandai just trying to help out because I don't know if most of your listeners know that they had a terrible fire there that burnt down half of the main street. Really? So, when, when was this? About 10 days ago, so dreadful. So they lost the supermarket, they lost the butcher shop, and they lost PJ's, which is the clothing store. And it happened, you know, one, a Wednesday night. They heard um, my son and daughter live in the main street and they heard the sirens and they went out and they could see see the flames anyway. My son, who... He texted a lot of the farmers to come in because he knew they had water trucks and stuff and they could see because of the old buildings that um, they're in trouble. Be, uh, they're in trouble, Macca, and they all join as they do in those country towns. Yeah. Anyway, fortunately, people were just wonderful. So um, they came in, you know, with water trucks and stuff because without them, the locals were never going to, you know, um, be able to manage it because just a huge flame and exploding things. And Jesus. Anyway, but the the wonderful thing, Magger, is that, of course, the rest of the town came down and they decided to draw a line where they would defend, you know, I think. I don't quite know the details, but they tr- they were determined to save some of the main street, and but they thought if they didn't, they'd need to evacuate the... Um, try and get the stock out of these shops. So the news agents and the chemists and everything, people were filling up wheelie bins with stock and anyway and everything else and the rural ag supplies and all the... Anyway, they did save all those businesses, but, of course, um, the stock take was somewhat in disarray. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, the locals, of course, went down and re-helped, um, helped everyone repack the shelves, but... And the terrible thing, Macca, is it's surrounded by these shops. It's just half of the main street, surrounded by black plastic. There's this dreadful stench. 
Mm-hmm. And they can't be just because of what's happened, and, but they can't even get back in to clean it up because of asbestos and various rules surrounding that. So, God help me. But, you know, God bless these little communities. You know, half a dozen people around the table decided that um, they really did need a grocery store. They knew the people that owned the grocery store were a bit in shock and overwhelmed and the butcher shop as well and everything else. So the Progress Association just decided that they would open up a grocery store in the RSL and would you believe, I think they might have even opened yesterday, we left Friday, but um, they just, there was 30 people working there, they were putting up shelves, you know, they were, you know, fridges, packing shelves, so now there's actually a workable grocery store at Mungandai, because people might know it's on the border between yep. Queensland and New South Wales, very remote sort of place, so... Um, and, of course, they're dealing with the border thing, so people that couldn't even leave Mungandai to go to Moree because they would have been outside the bubble. Mm. So, yeah. which was just ridiculous. So, but anyway, that they have changed that now, at least. But the grocery store, so hats off to all those people at Mungandai who've been just toiling away, just amazing. So, um, but look, if people do want to help actually make it, there is a um, GoFundMe page, Mungandai Fire Appeal, mm. and they're just sort of trying... So if anyone thinks they could or have been to Mungandai and enjoyed themselves. Um, but we really, I suppose it's just, this This is a story about, you know, um, bush people being resilient and sort of getting up when they've been knocked down pretty hard, can I mm. say. Margaret, we'll get together and play some music sometime. I think that would be good, Macca. So thank you, Macca. It's a pleasure. Good on you. Nice yes. to talk to you. Thank you. See you, bye. bye Hi, Macca. Millie Jones from Kendall here. Oh, hello, Millie. Uh, I just met Rod McCormick last year and swapped him a, a, a book for a CD out somewhere in Western <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, uh, listen, I want to ring because I just heard your story with Guy Menzies. All right, yep. And my grandmother was the first woman pilot in the Commonwealth, and she got her licence in 1927. What, a, what, a, what was her name? What a well, champion. her name was Millicent Bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T. And you're Millicent too? I'm Millicent too. Yeah. But she was killed uh, reasonably shortly afterwards, not in an aircraft accident, but in the Greycliff accident, which I don't know whether you've heard of. I ha- is that was, is it a ship? Yes, and, and a male steamer sliced through a ferry boat, mm. and she was on the ferry. And so Millicent has never been known to be the first pilot, woman pilot in the Commonwealth because she never became famous. Mm-hmm. And um, so my son has just written her story. They were pioneering people. They came out of Governor Gipps, the Harveys, mm-hmm. way back. And um, so she spent her young life on a horse, um, but then she got this passion Got the bug, the flying bug, the danger bug, really, I call it. The danger, it must have been amazing to be flying in 1927, did you say? Absolutely, yes, with all those old famous names too, Mm. you know, hanging around mascots. She didn't have some very nice things to say about a few of them. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was, it's just so sad that the story has never, that, you know, nobody, they say, oh, who was she? And we know Nancy Bird and all the rest, but mm. nobody knows her story. So my son's book, which is called Beyond the Sky, it will be launched, although how on earth we'll ever do it, I don't know, at the end of October. Will Dick Smith uh, do that for you? Because I'm sure he would. 
Yes. Launched well, the book, I'm not sure, but... I've been on, we were on to Dick at one stage, mm. and... Um, Isn't it a shame, of, you know, you just, you know, all the things that you, you, you find out about people, I mean, she's, she's really a pathfinder, isn't she, this Millicent Bryant? Oh, she absolutely was, mm. and it's fascinating to hear the stories of how it happened and how she flew and what she felt like and, mm. and the joy of it. And, um, dear, oh dear. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Millie, you, you sent the Why I Live Where I Live, didn't you, last week from I Kendall? Did. Because yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't make a very long one because I thought, oh, you don't want to hear all this junk, but I should have put a few more paragraphs in. <laughs> oh, well, it was about, it's about what was, was, it's interesting, isn't it? And I've had letters like that. It's interesting just what's happening in Australia. And, and there's a, a lot of concern, whether you're in a country town like you are in Kendall or in a suburb like I am in Sydney or yeah. wherever you are, the same things are happening. We're being inbuilt and inbuilt and you'd have a, a nice little house and then all of a sudden next door to you there'll, there'll be a two-storey mansion, people looking into your backyard. Dick Smith said to me, that to me about six or eight years ago um, about yeah. this about suburban living and then all of a sudden you're in a country town which has been lovely and I don't know. It's because the economists say the only way we can grow is by crowding more and more people in here and, and that might be true in terms of wealth but you lose a lot of other things and you've got to balance up the things you're going to lose which is yep. peace and quiet and safety and all those sort of things to the things you're going to grow, uh, gain, which might be, um, you know, a bank balance and stuff. But uh, and, and so what, what about opening up our inland towns, saying, okay, if you're going to come and live in, in Australia, we'll give you a business out there yep. and everybody can go start well, supporting those outback, outback towns. Let me know about Beyond the Sky and when it's going to be launched, Millie. Great to talk to you. I've got to fly, but... Uh, um, I'd love to send you a book. Oh, okay. Oh, right, good on you. Nice to talk to you. Terrific. Bye. Bye. G'day, this is Macca. Hi, Macca. My name's Jill Brown. I'm from Carrum in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hoping you could play I Still Call Australia Home for the stranded Australians just to give them some hope. Where where, my daughter, where are sorry? you going? You're in Karam? Karam. Yeah. My daughter's one of them, but she's okay. But there's so many people struggling during due to the caps and 30, people, 30 passengers allowed on the planes. I know that the airlines have to make money and so they have to bump the economy passengers, but it's just so awful to, you know, leave them on the other side of the door. Exactly. Um Jill, how long has she been, been over there? She lives over there or she works over um, there? She, she's, one, you know, like the rite of passage that young Australians do that. She's got a two-year visa, which now, has now expired. And so many of them are in the same situation. One young girl was a nurse over there and felt she couldn't leave at the height of the pandemic and now she's been stuck. It's just, there's so many awful stories, people grieving. Mm. Um, as I said, my daughter's okay, she's all right. But um, it's just, it's made me listen to all these stories and realise how we've got to do something to help them. See, the problem is, Jill, I reckon, is that we, we had no training for this. Um, for, for, for hardships in life, sometimes you get no training you get no training and that's what we needed for this virus we needed training about all sorts of things isolating ourselves and stuff and we've had to just cop it straight you know it's just bang we've just hit the wall straight away that's the problem but jill um i can't play still i could put my hands i'll play for you next week you get your daughter to ring me if she wants can she ring next week i'll i'll see if she'll ring you i will okay 
Thank you for taking my call, Macca. Have a cup of tea, Have mate. Day, do, does you the world of good. Thanks, Jill. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.